All right. Before we start, I want to let you know about this amazing all-in-one podcasting platform called Listener.fm. Listener helps you record, edit, distribute, and monetize your podcast all in one place. With just one click, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. Check it out at Listener.fm. But the most important thing and the most interesting thing that I found in the email that you sent me was that you got detained by United Nations in Haiti. What's that story? Jumping right in. So I was, my dad is a surgeon and I was with him on a medical brigade trip. And towards the end of the trip, we went to a city in the Southern part of the country. And on the way back, I, we came across a lot of traffic and everything was really backed up and a United Nations lorry had gone over a guardrail and was, it, it was sitting in a ravine, but the ravine wasn't big enough so that the whole truck went down. So the back end of the truck was just sticking up and I was really into photography at the time. So I had a camera with me and I got out and started taking pictures and then the UN soldiers who were nearby came and took my camera and it became a whole thing. And I think they were, I think they were from Chile. So it was quite a, yeah, it was quite a fiasco, but I didn't end up getting any of the uh, pictures, pictures back back to the, the States with me, but I actually, and I didn't send you this ahead of time, but I also was detained in Norway and the, the long story short on that is that I, my, my passport was lost in Italy and then it was found and I picked it up from the U.S. Embassy and somewhere along the way, someone forgot to update the EU or Interpol that the passport was no longer stolen. So I was in a little airport cell in Oslo, Norway for two hours without access to my phone. It was pretty wild. So yeah, unfortunately I've been detained a couple times, but I don't really think that it was totally my fault either time. I wasn't doing anything super crazy. That's crazy. Uh, I feel, uh, I know the story is similar to like, you know, the founder of Charity Water, he used to go on these trips uh, on like medical boats and they would go there and like do surgeon work. So that sounds very similar to what your dad does, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like it's also dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's quite, 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 a unusual trip i would say but past few years with covid and everything hmm. and actually there's been there's been some some political political issues so he hasn't been back but when when i went with him i i i trusted him and i i trusted our friend freddie on the ground so actually my dad's name is also freddie i was with the freddies i trusted the freddies nice yeah all right so let's get into the Again, the another interesting thing you mentioned about internal serendipity and how like even create an economy, once you start putting out your work, you just attract a lot of opportunities to you. And that's exactly what you mentioned, that most of the great opportunities I've had living in Dubai for two months, running the marathon, connecting with Morning Brew were extremely whimsical without much forethought or planning and partially a function of happenstance and dumb luck. Let's talk about this. Yeah. So part of it, I would say is dumb luck, you know, right place, right time. But 
I think that the the creator economy writ large over the past couple of years has started to show this at scale with mm-hmm. you know with there 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 are obviously sort of there, there's there's a long tail of people who are who are creating on the internet and there's there's a select few who have who have really really made it depending on what definition you use whether it's monetization success any of that but i think that it it it, it shows that you know when you put yourself out there the the hit rate your hit rate can can only go up and it might be low but once you start writing for general audience and the public it, it can make you know it can, it can it can change it can change your life path and i actually don't even think that i'm part of that cohort you know when who i'm referring to is the the so, the solo creators and i can't really speak at all to anyone who does video or tiktok i can speak to writing but yeah there there are you know there are plenty of examples out there of folks who are who are crushing it and it's it's a solo operation or it's it's a few writers or, or in every case I, i'm a big fan of every so it's a it's a collective a writer's collective but i think that when you're writing or doing anything online if you succeed then you you start to grow you know the, your your surface area and the chance for that serendipitous encounter only goes up but I wouldn't say that any of the the great opportunities or privileges that I've been able to have both in school with study abroad and, and, and just to, to back up and explain that I lived for Dubai for two months in, on a scholarship that I just found on the internet. And because I had <clears throat> some writing and, and was able to show that I was really interested in the area, I think that it dramatically helped my odds and ultimately was the reason that I was accepted, but the alternative that summer, because I didn't do any sort of, I wasn't, I hadn't lined up a formal internship. The alternative was to clean pools. And when I got back to Texas after being in this wild place that I never would have expected to live in, I I did clean pools. But I think, I think that the, the value of just putting yourself out there and and not setting a very predetermined path for yourself can really pay off. And just to say one last thing and tie it back to writing, I, I knew that I wanted to do writing in a professional context, but I didn't think that there was any sort of path. And I, I like, like, you know, the, the, the media industry has, it's been a rough couple, couple of decades with, with few exceptions. So I just basically wrote on the side and I got really lucky when I, I discovered the, the morning brew job opening. And this is three and a half years ago. And it was a create your own job type application. But because I had done a lot of this writing, much of it for public consumption, but much of it for for, for, for coursework or just literally researching a topic just because I wanted to learn more about it. I had that to point to, and ultimately it was a very competitive process. And at the time, you know, it was, I think there was a single digit amount of employees working there. So a lot of people were interested in this job, 
but because I had that body of work and had, had, had shown an aptitude in the areas I'd be writing about. And then of course had a, a style and tone that jibed with the daily morning brew. It, it ultimately, I was, I, I was successful and I got the job and the rest, as they say, is history. Definitely. That's a big one. But <clears throat> before we dive into morning brew, have you thought of, do you ever think about going solo? It's a good question. And that's actually kind of who I was referring to. I don't think I would definitely not say that I've ever been on that track. You know, I had a couple clips published in a few places and like experience writing for the college newsletter and, and then a few internships at, at various places. Uh, but then I broke into, to digital media and <clears throat> there weren't, there were not many people out there really in that world at the time. And I mean, kudos to them, kudos to anyone who's doing it now. I think that the, the challenge set is quite a bit different. I feel as if I've straddled the two worlds a bit because at, at payload and at, at the brew, you know, they're, they're some, they're, they're kind of personality driven publications and your, your voice shines through and a lot of traditional media opportunities. That's not really the case. And I mean, that's starting to change obviously, because especially when you look at the, the consumption habits of, of millennials, but then also Gen Z, they more than their, their, the preceding generation, more than their parents, they're getting a lot of their information from just personalities rather than any publications as a generalization, but it definitely directionally, you know, that, that holds true and it's, it's, it's clear in the data. So yeah, I would say that I've straddled the two worlds. I've mm -hmm. never been a a solo creator one you never say never but yeah i do i do think i, I do see think cyberpunk what yeah 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 it's 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 unfortunately fallen dormant it was a mm. absurd absurdly ambitious plan of mine initially to write a weekly personal newsletter about sci-fi sounding storylines in real life while juggling the demands of being the first employee at a startup and really starting a publication, you know, we had the newsletter as an MVP that was at a weekly cadence, but flipping the switch to daily and then also hmm. getting a bit more ambitious in terms of, of what we were covering. We can talk about this later, but yeah. yeah, it was, it was absurd of me to assume that I'd be able to basically write a newsletter six out of seven days of the, of the week. So it's been dormant, but I'm going to bring it back. Definitely. So stay stay I love tuned. The, yeah, I love the Seth Godin route. Like, you know, just write whatever you want. What are we thinking? And do, do not try to monetize because when you try to monetize it, uh, at least your personal newsletter, uh, you get very focused on one thing. You don't have much freedom to explore. And yeah, that just puts a lot of limits. So I tried a lot with that as well. But let's go back. So you were in University of Texas, Austin. Where was your head at when you were starting out? Did you think that you would become a writer if, if that's something that you would do full-time? So that was also kind of crazy happenstance. I 
grew up in Texas, and this was a, a master's degree that lasted two years. And essentially, the story behind that is I was the runner-up semifinalist for a Fulbright scholarship for a one-year sort of policy, like the policy version of an MBA at Bocconi University in Italy. And so I really put my eggs in, in that one basket, which was pretty dumb, and I didn't get it. And I had toured UT, and that was the only place I put an application into. But I, I still ended up being a, a pretty competitive candidate and with a scholarship, you know, and then being from Texas and it being a policy school at a state school, it was, it was, it was able to swing it. So I would say that it was kind of a a hedge and a way to try to, to, to bide more time to figure out exactly how I was going to get a career that if not, if, if it wasn't writing and if it wasn't, you know, writing in a, sort of journalistic type capacity was analytical or something. But again, I was, was, I had a game plan, but the game plan did not really involve breaking into media. It was just, it was again to just keep writing, keep building experience, send a lot of blind applications into places, get rejected a lot. And ultimately, you know, probably land in DC and be in some sort of, role that was that that let me use writing but it wasn't ultimately for a wide audience Hmm. for some sort of i I, yeah i mean honestly no i didn't really have a game plan so glad you asked (laughs) good good to call me out on it but i know i mean like i said i got really lucky and part of it was right time right place but the the internet opens up obviously a lot a long tail of opportunities and makes it easier to you know, makes makes it easier to do a lot of things. But one of them is match talent with with companies. And of, of course, the transition to remote with the pandemic has made that even abundantly more clear and kind of accelerated that trend. Hmm. But back back in the day when I discovered the opportunity, it it was still. Yeah, it was it was you know something a, a match we made online. Uh, a friend pointed me in the right direction, but it really wasn't. I didn't have working being an early employee at a startup and a newsletter first digital media startup. I didn't have that one in the cards. That was not part of the master plan. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. guessing. So you were setting global policy. I'm guessing you have to write a lot in that, right? Like you were in general doing a lot of scientific research, a lot of long form writing. Yeah. So I do have a lot of formal education and degrees, credentials, whatever, for what I'm about to say. It's going to sound pretty hypocritical, but the, the real topics that I became really intellectually curious about an undergrad, it was, it was climate change. And I wrote my hmm. honor senior thesis about that. But then in, when I was in Texas in Austin, where I still am, I really did. I mean, I, I did a lot of self-studying and to the extent that I could with coursework, just focused on emerging technologies. So 
you know, broadly defined. It's it's all the buzzwords that that you would think about. But I, I mean, I can rattle some off like self driving, yeah. machine learning, and I mean, I just read so many books. My library at my dad's house because I, I don't have anywhere to put all the books, but most of the rows are just are just tech books, and and so I was beginning to already steer myself towards those topics and trying to become the way the way I would describe it is like more knowledgeable and articulate about these topics than 99.9% of the world. So that doesn't include the the actual experts and, and engineers mm. and builders, but being able to distill and articulate the the key concepts, themes and trends with any of these technologies to a wider audience that that's obviously the skill set that I had started developing and then when I discovered the opportunity to potentially launch, help Morning Brew launch their second product in a new media vertical, and Emerging Tech was listed as one of them. It was like the stars aligned. Okay. I was actually going to ask you, like your program was Global Policy Studies, Emerging Technologies. Did you, like, what was the, like, does the name Emerging Tech Brew come from that particular name? Like, did you suggest that, that, okay, I studied Emerging Tech, let's name it Emerging Tech Brew? They had, I think, I forget. They, I think, they had just said we're thinking about launching new verticals, and there were a few others that they have since subsequently launched, like retail and marketing. I think it was emerging tech. It might have just been tech, but mm. the emerging tech aspect was a key di- differentiator in my mind because tech media was and is already very saturated. So, really setting us apart at the like brand like branding level of the publication but then also the coverage was i think really important for us and ultimately making it a successful endeavor right what's the story of landing this opportunity at morning brew uh but before that also like at that point of time when morning brew you were trying to join it was it morning brew morning brew or was it just another newsletter or just a normal newsletter it was not the morning brew that people know now. It was okay. A, it, the the whole team was in one WeWork. It was a really small team, but it was also not the normal media company because they, right. our our founders Austin and Alex, have been really deliberate about not getting ahead of their skis and becoming profitable before. To, to use a term that's kind of fallen out, like blitz scale or yeah, blitz scaling, mm. and. They were really good, good stewards about that, and not over investing in in growth or or headcount or getting really ambitious with the, the product roadmap. But another story that I and just you you were saying how do you part part of the interview process was I sent them a write up for a party that I wrote a Facebook event description for in college. So that was part of my job application. So again, is it wasn't the it was not the conventional job process. And of course, there was a bunch of not, a mock newsletters and multiple rounds of interviews and a lot more. But that was just that was just something at the margins that I, I thought was funny. But I think it probably helped me. Yeah. What was unique about that body description? Ooh, I couldn't tell you. I, okay. I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote a lot, um, a, a lot of them for, for friends for a variety of different topics. And it wasn't always you know like the tr- traditional 
college party. I, mm-hmm. I wrote, I wrote like news. I started a newsletter and wrote newsletters for when I ran the Boston marathon I was raising money for cancer research. And so, yeah, I, there, there's a lot of words out that I've, that I've put out there into the ether. Nice. So what was, what was it like early days of morning brew? Was it, uh, yeah. Like, was it like, Hey, be consistent, just do your research, get cool stuff out there. What was the vibe over there? Good question. It was, I think it was really, we were very lean. We were very scrappy. Like I said, you know, we could, we all could fit in one WeWork room. Hmm. And also to give a sense, I just watched We Crash. So to give a sense of when this was, that was when Adam Newman was still CEO and there was still talk of an IPO and whatnot. And then that ended up, all of that ended up coming to a head and we all know what happened. And that was that summer, but it was very, there, there was just a lot of work to go around and in a way, you know, almost every employee was, was a jack of all trades. But I think that we were just, I joined at a, at a pretty important inflection point of the company, I would say, because we were expanding beyond one newsletter. And that, when, when you go from, you know, when you try to go from being a newsletter company to a digital media brand or whatever you want to call it, it takes a while and there's a lot of friction because everyone has the association of, oh, it's just a newsletter. And I mean, Morning Grew has clearly grown quite a bit beyond that, even, even though I, I would still say like pe- a lot of people, they're not super familiar with all of the different endeavors would say it's a newsletter company for shorthand. But I, I, yeah, I think it's obvious that they've gone quite a bit beyond that and branched out into a lot of, of new channels and, and, and touch points. And <clears throat> I mean, it's, it is a fully, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a full media operation company and we i mean we want to do the same thing at payload i think on a much more expedited time frame but that's because we are writing for a bit of a different audience and it's more verticalized media and the the newsletter you know if we can execute on the strategy will be will still be the main distribution and main touch point with the audience but we'll be doing a lot more and, and so it has been, you know, it's been a challenge, but it's been fun because we're trying to execute on that pretty quickly. Right, right. I'm actually curious. So, you know, in the early days of, let's say, I know Noah Kagan. Are you aware of Noah Kagan? Mm-hmm. He's on YouTube and like, you know, he had posted. I'm pretty sure he lives here in Austin. Yeah, in I think he lives in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. And he he just goes to like, you know, people who have really good houses, like good mansions, he would walk in and be like, hey, how did you earn your first 1 million? Something like that. What's your advice for uh, kids today in college? But yeah, that, that's anyways. But, you know, in the early days, he mentioned that Mark Zuckerberg, what he would do is he would just every time go on the whiteboard and write growth. And he's like, this is what we are focused on. And like, even for me, like, I'm just like running a podcast and I built a dating app in the past. So 
there are some things that I would always keep on repeating to ourselves because I was, I was like, yeah, we need to focus on only one thing right now. That's only how things are going to work. So what do you think about Alex and Austin? Were there some things that they would keep on repeating that, hey, we are only focused on this? And because Morning Brew is the gold standard of newsletter. So what was the initial focus? What would they talk about a lot internally in the team? Well, this might have predated me, but the first answer I'd give you is doing things that don't scale. So hmm. Famously for me, but probably not famous for almost anyone else, except for people who really closely follow Austin and Alex, but they, they used to go to Michigan business classes, like the whatever 101, and the, the teacher would, let, would give them two minutes at the end of the lecture, and then mm. they would say, here's Morning Brew, here's the, or at the time it was called something different, Market Corner, I believe, and would say, Here, it's free, you know, it's really easy to read, it will give you a leg up in interviews, conveying the value proposition, and, and then sign up people and take down their emails and do that as they were leaving and, and do it one by one and manually add them. We did, I did that too, I, I would say, with when, I, when we started up Emerging Tech Brew and it was, it was slightly different. You know, there wasn't as much like in-person grinding at a university like that. But I, I mean, I sent a lot of emails and a lot of DMs and, and whatnot. But then I think that they were, like I, I said, the, the company was very smart about being really deliberate with the product roadmap and, and reaching profitability and just kind of, uh, bootstrapping and, and maintaining, you know, a organic amount of growth and not forcing anything. And I think that there were, there were other innovations. There were other innovations at the margin, but then there were also some elements of what Morning Brew did that was really unique. Like the referral engine mm -hmm. that Tyler, who is Tyler Dank, who's now the CEO of Beehive, the referral engine that he built was responsible. And this is a, this number is a couple of years dated, but it was responsible for a third of all of morning brews growth. So this is, I mean, this is a really niche world. I, I know that th there's a, I what there's what I call a newsletter industrial complex now, but yeah. ultimately at the end of the day, you know, that, is only apparent to you if you're spending a lot of time on Twitter, if you're just very online. <clears throat> but I think that wh where that differs from what we're doing now is, you know, we're writing for people in the space industry and our growth to date has it definitely been a lot of doing things that don't scale, but also we've been very deliberately, you know, spending effort, time and resources on publishing things to web and, and, and trying to put a lot of evergreen material out there because there are just a lot of, there are a lot of areas in, in, in our view that, that are, are, are undercovered. And when you just think about SEO, that just nothing is Google, which has this, you know, the smartest 
algorithm in the world for crawling the web and, and serving the con- you the content you're looking for does not know what I'm searching for half the time when I'm searching about some esoteric part of the space ecosystem. So I think that that speaks to our, our opportunity. But for us, it has been a little bit of a different growth strategy. You know, we do have a referral system and that's been going really well, but space industry is, and I actually don't want to downplay the the success or importance of that, but the the space industry is a little bit older and I'm not sure Mm. it will ultimately long-term be able to drive the same degree of growth that it did for Morning Brew. But I I mean, we haven't done any paid acquisitions, so we're still thinking a lot about organic growth strategies. And then of course it's just content driven growth. So it's the newsletter, it's the consistency. I mean, we write a daily industry newsletter and also we're publishing online and, and Ari, one of our co-founders and, and Jess, our director, director of operations are very good about posting on social media. I have not been so far. Right. Before before we get into payload, I actually want to know, like, you grew the Emerging Tech Brew from zero to 300,000 readers. How was that? How did your day look like over there? By then, there was a dedicated team of, of more than that, so I don't want to single-handedly take credit. But it was the case that for a decent amount of time, I don't remember exactly how much, but I was just the, I was the only kind of dedicated writer. And I mean, it helped, of course, that we had the initial distribution with the Morning Brew daily mm-hmm. newsletter. And so that gave us a, a pretty large bump on the list uh, and, and you know, an initial base from, from that we could grow from. But I mean, it was a lot of work. It was, it was, it was tri-weekly and so it wasn't daily. So it wasn't as much of a grind, but it was still a grind. And I really, really valued the strategy of trying to do what I would call non-commodity news and doing some degree of original content or reporting in the newsletter. So when we started out, it was all curation and aggregation, but then pretty quickly we started to you know write write about things or cover things in a way that you wouldn't see elsewhere hmm. i think that was important and the the newsletter format still that that we had at morning brew that they still have allows you to still fit that commodity news in and have the optionality you know, towards the end of the newsletter for your readers who are interested to, to click out and go read about it somewhere else. Um, but of course, if you, if you look at the, the real estate of any given newsletter at Emerging Tech Brew and Morning Brew, it, it changes over time. And it certainly has changed, I would say, quite a bit in the past couple of years. But there's still, the majority is still space where the, the creators, the writers have, have a lot of, you know, flexibility with, with, with how they approach a story and what they write and, and, and much more so in the industry verticals case, like what they actually like report on. I would say that the daily morning brew is still pretty heavily on Mm. curation and aggregation, 
but that it, there's there's I mean I'm not there's no knock on that whatsoever because that's the main value proposition that it's serving. Right. What's the difference between providing these very aggregated news versus long form writing on a very specific topic? Like let's say you also wrote on autonomous vehicles on climate change, you're long form. But now uh, with payload and with bonding brew, you are aggregating all these news. What's the difference over here from a creative perspective, from how much time it takes, from how the user or the audience reacts to it? I would say, well, so there's a few different buckets there. I think that for more long form and essays or, or opinion or analysis, you can really lean into voice there in, in ways mm-hmm. that you, 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 you know, your, your viewpoints and, and voice are a bit more constrained, but by no means, if you're writing for any of these newsletter first companies, is your is your voice constrained? Like, I, I think I think there's a spectrum, and I think that like Substack or Beehive. I'm going to plug Beehive. You, you, I mean, you're free to do whatever you want. You want, right? Like you, with 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 very few restrictions, and most in most cases, there's no editor. And, mm-hmm. and then you go across the spectrum and there's still a lot of voice in any of these companies that are, you know, digital media shops, newsletter shops, whatever you want, but it, it's, it's of course different. And then there, there's the, the, the sort of legacy media companies where there's still, there's, there's a lot more, more rules and guidelines with, and, and you know, there's really fleshed out style guides and, you, you you can't write with with a first person voice unless you, unless you're writing for the the opinion pages, and you can't really like break the fourth wall as I as I like mm-hmm. to say a lot, and how I uh, I think about how we position ourselves. Definitely, uh, and and right. actually, just one one more point. I think yeah. that the the newsletters like Morning Brew or payload are unique because they let you bundle a lot of that into one Hmm. and there's you know to get really granular like there's like the top blurb and you can you have tons of optionality with how you use that and it could be for growth it could be for fitting more news or a funny joke in and and there's there's a there's i i think that there's probably only a couple hundred people maybe a thousand people in the world who have like thought this much about the real estate of a newsletter and what what purposes they serve but yeah i mean that's that's why i I think it's a really interesting compelling format and then of course there's the two-way street dynamic where you can you can rapidly iterate based on audience feedback they can reply you 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 are you know, you're, you're doing, you're, you're, you're serving a lot of, of roles in one. And in most cases, you know, you're also at least partially working on growth with certain elements of the newsletter. And there's a lot of copywriting to convey like why someone should want to sign up. So they're fun. They're a lot of work, but they're fun. Yeah. Give me one very specific insight 
that you you kept on writing and then one user comes in or one survey results uh, tell you, tells you that, okay, maybe change the way you do this very specific thing and that shoots up the engagement or growth or in general, the NPS score? That's a good question. I don't have any hard data on tweaks that could you really move the needle on NPS, for example, but I think, I think on the margins and using what I would call anic data, because you're never, I mean, compared to, compared to a website or social media, I mean, the level of precision that you get in, in being able to measure engagement and, really anything more targeted than that you, you it's just night and day you know you don't have mm. all of that data at your disposal and i think part of that's probably you know part of that privacy and mm. and 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 consumers you know in, increasing premiums they'll place on privacy i think that's that's part of that's a good thing but sometimes you're going with your gut you can run reader surveys and, and you could do market research. And, you know, I, at morning brew, I responded to 4,000 separate readers over the nearly three years, three years I was there. So again, you know, that doesn't give me a really, really detailed demographic look at the entire audience, but it's, it's, it's close. And there, there, you know, there, there are, there's a lot of edge cases and outliers with who's going to respond, but ultimately, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty good look at, at who's really engaging with your product. And I think, I think an example that I would take from, from the surveys that we would run and we would incentivize participation in the survey with giveaways and, and whatnot, and being very, very deliberate about the copy that you're using and, and conveying within the newsletter why people should do this survey so that you can, you know, so that you get more and, and hopefully more representative data. But I think one big change, honestly, honestly, my, my, my memory is failing me right, right now. I know that there was a really, really, Oh, I, I know what it was. It was by far and away the most common feedback that I got was, like when morning and cause we, we sent, we sent in the afternoon on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays and, and hmm. uh, it, it still does. So, I mean, I can, you know, I can't speak for, for how the company operates now cause I don't work there, but that is, and I hope I'm, that's not, yeah, it's not secret. And a lot of, a lot of readers have, have expressed that, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's hard. And even, even not until I would say, pretty recently, you know, like a year and a half ago, like, especially during the, the earlier stages of the Panini. Oh, I just said Panini. It's, it's a, it's a habit of mine of the pandemic. We just didn't have the resources to shuffle everything around and completely rearrange deadlines and have copy editors and editors online at certain times with their calendars blocked out to send in the morning. So hmm. Yeah, it's it's always something you know. It's 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 easier said than done, but 
it took me a while to get there, but yeah, that's definitely the biggest piece of feedback that we got. And ultimately you just have to weigh the trade-offs of what that would involve in terms of, of quality and, and the product at the end of the day and, and weigh that again, you know, weigh that against, against internal demands on your time and just your confidence and in in your ability to execute on that. And so you can't, you know, you can't make, make everyone happy, but that is something right. I wish we, we had done while I was there. And, and, and it's, we got, we got close, we got close at a couple key junctures, but yeah, ultimately we weren't able to do it. Yeah. You talked about newsletter analytics and similar, that's similar to podcast analytics. Like it's really hard to find engagement and stuff like newsletter. You just look at open rate that they clicked on the button and now the newsletter opens up, but there's no way to figure out that, okay, how much did they actually read? So that makes sense. Similar for podcasts. We were struggling earlier, but now we are figuring out some innovative ways to do some analytics. But I'm actually curious with Morning Brew, there's something I would always think about that. Okay. If you have a deadline that, okay, by 6 a.m., the morning brew should hit everybody's email. Do you guys have to pull a lot of all-nighters when there is some really big events that happen in the evening or late in the night or day before? Yes. Yeah. So for the daily daily team, they have everything wrapped up the night before in 90, 99% of the time. So hmm. they, they then, quote unquote, set the newsletter, which basically just means schedule it. And it goes out to a segment of the audience. So 2.5%. There are A, B, C, D tests with different subject lines. And that test will run for an hour. I think that that goes out at, might, might go out at 4 a.m. Eastern or maybe 5 a.m. Eastern. And all these, this number, you know, these numbers may be stale. They may not, I don't know. But then whatever subject line wins is where that, that, that's the, the subject line that's then used for the rest remaining 90% of the list. And that goes out that, that honestly made quite a bit of difference. And we do, we do that on a smaller scale, just with AB with the industry verticals, but to the second part of your question, I think a perfect example is when Russia invaded Ukraine. Hmm. That is not a, at the time, you know, literally 12 hours into the land invasion and sending the missiles in and everything. That's not a business news story. It's a world story, but I know how the morning routine works. Like there was no way that anything else could be the top story that day. And of course it is a business story Hmm. now. It affects, yeah. Yeah. It affects everything. But I mean, like literally like every single tech company has mentioned Ukraine on their earnings Mm. calls. It just speaks to how interconnected, interconnected everything is, but I digress. So I know, I do know, I actually didn't really, you know, sleep at all that night. And I just was unfortunately stuck to my like three screens all night. And I know, I, you know, I know that the morning routine, I can tell that, that they, that someone was, was up and someone ultimately went into the campaign, unscheduled the campaign took whatever story was top and either made it the second one, made it shorter or just shelved it or saved it for later and and wrote to the best that they could a summary of what had happened within the first few hours of the war. 
That's interesting. And thank you for giving a very specific story about this. I would always think about this. It would happen with me. I set myself on a very uh, strict schedule of releasing news every single day. And yeah, this would happen. Like sometimes there's something super cool that would end up happening. And there's no way you cannot mention that because that gets the eyeballs. Yeah. 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 One of the clearest examples, actually, for me, when we used to schedule Emerging Tech Brew was... It was, I think it was scheduled around noon Eastern and we had written a bullet point about how Israel or India, I can't believe I'm forgetting this, but one of them had basically crash landed on the moon and, and it could be I, how, how's, how's that for, how's that for a second? Well, both, both have, uh, yeah. I think it might've been an Israel like company or organization hmm. But, but basically we had just assumed that they were going to land and they crash landed. And that was a stupid assumption. I mean, I would never do that now being full-time in space, but, <laughs> but, but we, I mean, we got, we got a lot of reader responses for that because we had just, oh, we had, yeah, I mean, we had made the assumption. So that is the perils of writing a very, a news focused newsletter and, mm. and trying to just plan ahead and schedule, you know, and, and, now that I am full time on space, literally space never sleeps, and yeah. rockets don't adhere to the nine to five work schedule. So that's that's right. been a really, really, really tough challenge for us. Right. I know a similar thing that happened for me was when TikTok was banned in India. TikTok and other Chinese apps were banned in India, and I wrote a piece, and that blew up. LinkedIn News actually featured my piece, so I was super oh, awesome. happy of that all nighter that I pulled. But anyways. Uh, I'll tell you, Ryan. So Ryan Duffy from Morning Brew and Zach Crockett from The Hustle. These are the only two guys I remember from these two newsletters. But in general, how do you I'm how flattered. do you think about? Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, I'm a big fan. So how do you view The Hustle? How do you view the competition between Morning Brew and Hustle? You both recently, like you both build your entire, like, you know, status over here, offering great value. And then you recently both got acquired. So how do you see the competition over here? Any good stories over there? No, not really any good stories. Like there's no, you know, there wasn't really any sort of like, like, like shit talking or, or, I don't know if I could say that. Uh, There's no, there wasn't really any animosity. I always, Mm. this is kind of a generalization and a bit of stereotyping, but I always thought of Morning Brew as more, for the East coast and the archetype mm. reader, you know, was a, was a professional millennial in New York city and hustle was for the West coast. Again, that's a generalization. That's a snapshot in time from three years ago. But I honestly think that that is a pretty good way to describe it. If you had to describe it in a couple sentences, you know, like okay. the elevator pitch. Right. Interesting. All right. So now let's get into payload. Let's what was it. the reason for the switch getting, from uh, getting from an area that was very general, very focused on the cool technologies out there versus now really focused on one specific niche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of it was a function of just feeling like it was time to make the jump and do something new. And by that time, we had been acquired or, you know, Business Insider had Hmm. had had acquired a majority stake in morning brew 
but also the the role had changed considerably and i was more i mean i you know i was more it was just a much more specialized role and it was just writing and it's funny because i talked earlier in this conversation about how i wanted to be a writer as 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 a as a bright-eyed college kid and didn't think that it was going to be a possibility and then i did but again back to the topic of serendipity and not trying to hmm. plan everything out I, I i really enjoyed the early stages of company building at morning brew and wearing multiple hats and just being you know working kind of multiple functions and i wanted to i just wanted to get back into a, an, an earlier a much earlier stage startup by i think by the time I left Morning Brew. We had about 150 employees. And mm-hmm. I also honestly just wanted a role where I I felt that I could continue to professionally grow. And so the first employee and you know founding editor payload, it's it's just a completely new challenge set, but I could ideally hopefully grow with the company. And I felt that I felt that emerging tech brew had had reached the point months prior but it had reached the point where i could leave and it wouldn't you know be a a death blow to the publication and i think that there were contingencies there but for the first couple of years it would have been a big i I think it would have been like a big noticeable change if for whatever you know if i got got hit by a bus uh I, i do think i mean there there is one there was another early employee alex who who pitched in a lot and i think that she she could have taken over but she had then taken on new duties at, on, on the daily. You know, the situation was always changing. But I, I felt I felt that I didn't. I had no qualms whatsoever about the the quality levels. Basically, where I just step mm-hmm. away, and so that that helped that helped me me make the decision and not be super super worried. Um, right. I mean, that's. I mean, and that's something that that's that's an issue that is more acute for any of these independent creators there is not it's not necessarily as easy as one might think or assume that you that there would be just the continuity where someone to take over or acquire the list and the the creator was to step away <clears throat> and so you, you know you could call that the the key man key woman risk and it's I, I and, and and of course you know burnout, people get burnt out. So I think that that is going to happen more as you see more and more people that have taken the full time plunge and eventually just reach the point where they get super burnt out. But that doesn't you know that 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 problem set doesn't perfectly compare to what we're doing because there we we are a company and there is. A bit of redundancy but there is still you know we're still really early stage there's only we only have two full-time people on the editorial team with with two part-time contributors definitely how do you come across the team mo and ari they found me okay yeah yeah but i i was i was very drawn to like i said the idea of working really getting, you know, getting your hands really dirty and getting back in the trenches. And I also really liked the thesis. I think that 
there, there's this industry that is in an inflection point. What was the pitch? Uh, it, you know, it was to, it was to be, be the founding editor, be like the person who basically like launched the publication. Like I said, we had an MVP, but Hmm. a weekly newsletter and a daily newsletter is a a lot different. And, and I mean, they, they made a, they made me a good offer, which helped de-risk it. But I think that I, you know, I know that they, they looked at other folks too, for the role as, 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 as I would expect. And a lot of them didn't have startup experience. So Hmm. that also made it, that made it easier for me to weigh the pros and cons and and make a decision more quickly. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, startups don't scare me, obviously. Right. Did did they DM you on Twitter or was that like very professional LinkedIn or email? They, 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 got to me somehow through a mutual connection and okay. I believe that they had kind of caught word that I was put, put, starting to think about next steps. And mm. it was, it was super mysterious and, and vague. And I was like, why does Ari want to talk to me? But it worked out, it worked out. And I think ultimately it was, a, it was like a month between between that initial fateful call and me signing the offer letter but don't quote me on that right okay so you joined in september 2021 uh which is like a few just a few months ago you move from the mvp weekly to now daily and you reach a lot of subs do you want to quote the number of subs you have right now yeah i might get in trouble for this but okay <laughs> no i'm not and i'm not going to say cut it out and post uh this is a good forcing function for us because we've been been very tight left about it. So right now we are at 7,646 subscribers. I think around two and a half months ago, we probably had around 5,000. The open rate is 52.5%, but take that with a massive grain of salt because open rates have been dramatically inflated because of Apple, mail, privacy changes, et cetera, that, that whole kind of email email i call it email open rate armageddon so that is do you want to explain that because i have no idea what that how does that affect the media yeah so apple along with the att changes that they made in ios that that have that are a much bigger story because they relate to the entire app store and all of Hmm. ios it's made a been a huge headwind for facebook for example right meanwhile you know i'm just a, a lowly I'm a lowly email writer, but they also made some changes with their email client. And essentially what they do is they open automatically every email that goes through the inbox. And that has the effect of inflating open rates. So like I said, you know, open open rates were were one kind of important <laughs> metric that right. you really thought you knew. And that's a, a really important guiding star. But honestly, open rates too are like, I gave you the the list size first. And I would say that's because we're still really early and mm-hmm. we are like in hyper growth stage. But that is more of a vanity metric, in my opinion, in the newsletter world. And not just my okay. opinion, but it, it, open rate and engagement is more important, obviously. But sure. but yeah, I mean, open rates are are... There, there's best practices and I could, I can, you know, send you some good articles about this write-ups later, but yeah. Uh, but I still, I'm still going to give it. I, I, I don't know why I would just kind of kneecap myself like that and make it seem less impressive. So I hope that, uh, 
I hope that any potential payload advertisers are not listening to this. <laughs> no, that is impressive. That's just a good number. Uh, it's great. Like when the standard metric of newsletters is, is open rate and now it's all bumped up for everyone, great for you. Uh, more advertisers, more uh, more cash in the bank. Uh, but le- <laughs> but let's we'll, we'll move see. ahead. We'll see. Yeah. Well, let's move to this interesting question, which is that because now you guys are very focused on the space vertical, you have employees at Blue Origin, SpaceX, Lockheed, Axiom, Space, and other space organizations all reading to you guys, hopefully every day, hopefully 52% of them. Uh, What are the stories of people reaching out to you or telling you that, hey, this is the value that we found out of it? Because they just don't read for just entertainment they are reading it for business value so what are some stories you have come across how people have leveraged the knowledge of payload for something valuable to take recent examples i mean we are we're one of very few options out there that will do this on a daily cadence but Hmm. some of the weekly repeating sections that I might not be my favorite, our favorite thing to put together there. That's the most, the, the skimmable sort of roundups of hiring contracts, which is really important in space and, you know, term sheet and then other and the like, those, those have been unbelievably valuable to every single reader who I've spoken to, including some pretty high level readers Every single one of them loves that section. And so it's just a funny asymmetry because knowing what, you know, knowing how you're going to put together the newsletter is at this point kind of a science for us. And that's not to say that we don't periodically reassess and even on a week to week basis take into account the feedback of readers. But Initially, you know, a couple months ago when that feedback started rolling in, people love that section. And theoretically, that is what you could, I would say, describe as commodity news. Because, for example, you know, when we round up the mm-hmm. like new executive hires and people switching companies and, and public company appointments and, and officials getting sworn into the government, a lot of that is commodity information in the sense that it's being put out in press releases and in 99.9% of the case, there's not any sort of exclusivity for us or breaking news element, but no one, it's not being compiled elsewhere. And so that has been a huge differentiator for us. And the same could be said about term sheets and contract report. And then we do that could probably give you a sense of what will do more of in the future, we will occasionally, and it's called payload insights, but we'll put together data in a graph that has not been a installment of late just because we are kind of re-architecting how we think about it and templatizing it differently. But those sorts of what I call small plates, and that is not an original term, but we'll go with it. But it, just the repeated weekly sections, those, those have been a huge value. And that's really clear, really, really clear to our audience. But <clears throat> our audience is, it's even harder to know because 
a lot of these folks are in the three-letter agency world. Hmm. And I mean, God, I would say probably, I would guess that at least a third of them, if not half, their work emails are on, they're on either government servers or they, they're they in the contracting world, they have clearances. And, and so a lot of, I mean, we have a lot of images in these newsletters and a lot of email clients do not let you automatically load images. So the newsletter looks really weird. So most people are not reading from those work emails, but that also makes it harder for people when we run surveys to self-identify. But all that being said, mm. I am, we just ran a survey and I am literally blown away, super excited about how, how much data we were able to get and what that data tells us. What are the top insights? Yeah. So the NPS was 8.7 something and the NPS was very high. I don't have the exact, I don't have the exact number in front of me. And we also had, I mean, it's just really highly concentrated in the space industry, in government, military, in the investment community. And I mean, that's exactly what we, we, we had hoped for. And I mean, just another element is that over 8% of our list participated in this survey, which that, that, that's a lot. It's really hard to do. So we're, we're pumped about it. We're, I mean, we're still digesting a lot of this data, but it's, it's, it's exciting and it's, it's certainly validating. Yeah. Ryan, how does it feel like you never studied rocket science but you are sitting down with the leaders of these three-letter organization, hopefully, and other cool space soon. startups. Soon. <laughs> yeah, soon. <laughs> and other cool space startups, and you're talking rocket science with them. How does it feel like? It's a lot of imposter syndrome. I'll tell you that. And fortunately, before we went live with the Daily Newsletter, I had a month at Payload where you know I was on the payroll and I was learning and learning and learning and just really cutting my teeth on all these topics. But I would describe it as I have, I, I'm, I'm really, I try to be a perfectionist in preparing for any conversation, hmm. but I also try to be, I mean, I, I, I go probably two or three levels deeper when I'm, when I'm trying to learn about any various technology or sub industry or specific topic and read, you know, like really dense technical white papers, like go like read everything, a company, all of the, the specs and all the information that they have listed publicly, like go back and watch YouTube, go back and listen to past podcast appearances. And 80%, I, I would say of that knowledge will never like directly make its way into a newsletter or a podcast hmm. or on interview, but it helps me with how I approach stories and prepare for interviews. And I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I, as an, as an interview, I've gotten pretty good feedback so far from, from subjects who I have, have spoken to for written Q and A's or just for, you know, quick newsletter stories or for our podcast, we're launching a podcast very soon. And that, of course, is, is validating. But I mean, it just goes to show that that there's no there's no hack. But you know, you just have to put in the work. But yeah, I, I I'm I'm non technical 
by I'm, I'm non-technical by, you know, trade or training, but as I mentioned earlier, I try to know everything that I can and understand systems and processes and technologies like, like a, like a first principles level. And then where my, what I would say is secret power is just being able to efficiently to distill and communicate that to an audience in a, a nuanced and textured way, but also in an entertaining way, you know, I think that one, one of the huge opportunities for us is if, if, if we do our jobs right, if I do my job right, I should be able to make a story on FCC licensing, SDA missile tracking, layer tranche solicitations, like technical orbital insertion or oxygen rich staged combustion engines, at worst digestible, but at best where where people where 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 folks eyes won't glaze over reading about it or or they maybe even like we crack a joke and they laugh at it and that's a different challenge for at at morning at morning brew at emerging tech brew we were writing for a more consumer audience and a, a bigger tent of folks but of course there's more of a commonality given that we're an industry vertical with payload but still there are people who come to the newsletter for, for, for different things. So having that range is really important, but also Mm -hmm. making like, like, you know, a rock, like a rocket scientist might not be, and there are, there are rocket scientists who do know a lot about FCC licensing, but a lot don't. And that might be why they're coming to payload because they don't, they, they know, of course, you know, like I said, the 99.9% thing, they know they are the 0.01% who know a lot more than me about specific type type of, of engines or in combustion, but they might, you know, they don't have their eyes on the ball necessarily and aren't don't have like the time to, to get super read up on, on all of these other aspects hmm. of the space ecosystem. So that's a big opportunity for us, I'd say. Definitely. I know you also fly a lot of drones. Is that a way to be closer to rocket scientists? <laughs> I don't have it with me. I do. I do. I, no, um, but it's, 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 I don't know. It's the closest that I can get to, to, to the, the level, like the, 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 the images they're, they're taking for space. And I would actually say, I mean, I, I, I especially with the, the nicer new, relatively new drone that I have, the quality that I can get is still better than the satellites. But if you ask oh, me, man. if you ask me in, 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 in a decade or something, I'm not sure. It's an interesting, interesting prospect but i mean there there's an example like i that's just when i when i have time i try to do it i have like my faa license and i would want to be a pilot but i don't have the money or time right now so again check back right. in a decade check back yeah. in a decade perfect that's that's when you're scheduling the next pod uh, <laughs> but did you get the F, you have a FAA certification, right? Did you get it for non-recreational purposes or is it, just, is it just like just to get that certification? Well, to cover my bases, I, I have a, a part 107 license, which okay. means you know, technically if you post any sort of drone images or video, 
even if it's not for a commercial purposes, but you post it on YouTube, like you have to have a license and there, there's not really perfect adherence to that. And I actually don't post stuff on YouTube. I post it all on, on Instagram. I've never had a personal Instagram, but I have one for my drone, okay. which, which is nice. It helps with time management. And I, and I only really spend any time on it when I'm posting new pictures That's or looking for, or looking for inspiration. But I got it to, with the goal of getting monetizing that hobby and mm-hmm. again you know kind of insane of me to get a nicer newer drone and really like up my photoshop and adobe lightroom try upping upping my my skills as i'm you know starting at this really intense like really rigorous job in in and as the first employee of a startup but we made progress and i and i'm pleased to report that i have started monetizing it on the side when i'm when i'm able to it's also it's also fun cuz i can i can appreciate the uh, the craft of people who either work in house at like SpaceX or Blue Origin or a lot of the other rocket companies cuz i yeah. i know i know exactly when their live streams are 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 panning or or, or when they're they're switching to drones and mm. anyone anyone who's looking for it knows but I can tell how how skilled the the operators like hands are and how steady they're being and, and when they and when they mess up. So that's been a, a fun little weird example of worlds colliding. Right. I'm into photography, so looking at your Instagram, definitely love it. Love those shots, love the color grading over there. You're definitely you spend a lot of time in Photoshop. That's that's good. Well that I mean part of that is is for payload, right? I yeah. I this is the this is a huge part of the job, and I, I make I make a lot of our graphics. Mo, okay. the CEO, will make a lot of our graphics. But graphics, so you it's, mean like it's sketching on iPad? No, I mean just just you know whether it's it's visuals or hmm. any sort of like payload like collateral for social media or anything. Okay. And 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 logos like we're launching a new newsletter that. That is, it's going to be infrequent and it's from one of our co-founders and it's just about marketing in the space industry. And I just like made him the logo today and that is very much not writing, <laughs> you know? Nice. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I'm editing that too and stuff. So this is kind of what I meant by, by being more of a, a jack of all trades at, at a company that's this early stage. I, I also know my way around HTML and I have used it a bit in this job. But I am not a coder, and like I said, I'm not. Right. Uh, I'm not like hardcore technical, obviously. Right. Okay. So Ryan, let's dive into the meta trends. There are a lot of trends that you mentioned. There are some really cool ones that I want to learn more about. So let's talk about the debris, the problem with debris, risk of further exploration and commercialization of space. Yes. So first, a shout out to Rachel Zisk, our lead reporter. She published the first installment of a series of longer web features about orbital debris the the tragedy of the commons that is orbital debris and it does a really good job some of this isn't hasn't been published yet so i'll try not to reveal any secrets but from what we published today you know she did a really good job of setting the scene and level setting with how we got here and just the, the risks that that could pose. The basic idea with debris, and I'm sure most of your listeners have probably at this point heard of the problem. There are a few areas that we're going to cover. 
that people have heard of. Debris, I would guess, is one, but the one that I know that everyone has probably heard of is dropping launch costs. But back mm-hmm. to debris, actually kind of as a, as a result of, of dropping launch costs, we, you know, we're, we're launching more shit into space than ever before and more quickly. And mm-hmm. there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good that comes with that. And but 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 there's also you know there's also new challenges and so a good example is like the broadband mega constellations. SpaceX launched 106 Starlink satellites on two Falcon 9s within with I think with less than 24 hours this weekend, and they're the real the only ones so far that have like one of the mega constellations online. But there are more that are coming. I you know Kuiper Project Kuiper, which is Amazon's forthcoming. And, and I'm, I mean, really forthcoming, like it'll be a right. few years before you see a lot of, of momentum there. But they, they had the largest procurement, commercial launch procurement ever. And they just made these block buys of a ton and ton of rocket capacity to, to deploy Kuiper. And it split out among three providers, including Blue Origin, which, as I said at the time, is like the Spider-Man pointing meme, Amazon buying from Blue Origin. Shocker. But... The, the the point is is that there's you know there's there's a ton of objects that are accruing in space and most as Rachel put it in her her story today most are oper- most of it's operational but much more is not you know there's there are like millions and millions of really tiny pieces of shards orbiting up there there are huge spent upper upper rocket stages mostly from the united states and the soviet union slash russia and then there there you know there are just more satellites going up you know there's been there's been a lot that there's been a lot that has enabled us beyond just those launch costs there's a there's even just more law and the miniaturization of components and like the economies of scale that smartphones have produced to make these these components affordable for low Earth orbit, but that lets you toss a bunch of satellites up much more cheaply than than operator you know than operators previously would have. And so it's been a paradigm shift, and it has I mean it's created a lot of good, but it's, right. it's just it's it's getting crowded up there, and as the risks of collision occur specifically in low Earth orbit. The concern is that it could trigger this cascading chain of events, whereby more satellites collide. They de- they 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 create more and more debris, and all of that, you know, those 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 clouds of debris continue to to collide with one another, and it's just this nasty feedback loop, and hmm. the fear. And this is, you know, this is not a a uh, like a, like a, an, an urgent urgent like like space is become un, unusable tomorrow. But that is the that is the, the the fear. You know, you see a lot of parallels with how people think about this and how we think about climate change mitigation or how we have historically. But yeah, I mean, the fear is that key orbits be, could become unusable for decades, and so that is the sort of doomsday scenario. And right. I mean, that would obviously be pretty, pretty bad for humanity 
and for the space industry, and it would also be bad for payload. So we really hope that that doesn't happen. <laughs> that's a, uh, in your earnings call, that's the biggest risk to the business, debris. The, the risk factor, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The risk factor is, is the, um, the unmitigated cascading negative feedback loop of, of collisions of debris. Right, that makes sense. What do you think about, or do you remember the solutions that Elon Musk proposed? I do not remember, but definitely there was a conversation around debris where Elon Musk proposed some solutions. I believe there was a con- there was a conversation about throwing a wide net of something. There was another solution or vacuuming this stuff, but I don't exactly remember. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interesting mechanisms ranging from nets to servicer spacecraft that will that that that, that will dock with debris or hmm. defunct satellites or really big spent rocket stage upper upper rocket stages <clears throat> it's not it's not cost effective and in most cases not super technologically feasible yet and then there's the question of you know where whether market mechanisms exist and mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's it's it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty nasty, complex problem, I would say. And I would I mean, I would I would urge people to read the the payload payload online series. Uh, obviously, gonna get a plug that. But there are, there are a lot of proposals like that. But I mean, you know, I, I I would be remiss to not mention that for any sort of Starlink satellites, like they. Where, whereas, whereas companies in the past might not have had the ability nor any sort of incentive to save enough onboard or, or to, to even have onboard propulsion or save enough fuel to deorbit or, or just otherwise get out of the way. That is, that is, that's, I would say, uh, that's, that's pretty common now. And so mm-hmm. Starlink, Starlink satellites will, will, will naturally deorbit and and burn up upon atmospheric reentry and i mean that that is that is that is common and i think you actually you saw spacex is famously you know they rely on 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 the storytelling capabilities of of their ceo and just you know, the the natural attention that they they get as like the leader and and the live streams and whatnot but they don't mm. share they don't share i would say they don't overshare more than they have to and in space you that still means like you know there's you can learn a lot from fcc filings for example and and you know at this point space has been a massive employer and so there's a lot of former employees out there who who would share more than they would have otherwise but SpaceX shared some some details recently when there was a geomagnetic storm that basically wiped out a a a bunch of of new Starlink satellites, the majority of them, I, I believe, that would have okay. yeah, and and they they burned up upon reentry. So wow. yeah, I mean, there, this is this is I'm trying to give like a measured perspective, but right, there, yeah, there there's also then there's there's geo which is which is higher than low earth orbit or leo and there's a lot less satellites there 
that's where that's where the the GPS satellites are, for instance, and that uh, folks have been better stewards up there, and it's a lot more governments or sort of quote unquote legacy operators. But if something happened up there, it'd be really bad because naturally it would hmm. take a lot longer for for those. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's. They, they stick around. The higher you get, as a rule of thumb, the higher you get, the longer it's going to stick around. Definitely. You know, you mentioned about the miniaturization of components of phone and stuff. When I was a kid, the I actually fell for the moon landing conspiracy. And the biggest logic for in my mind was simple that, hey, the phones didn't exist. Like these smartphones didn't exist like before 15 or yeah, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever. How could these guys... Uh, in 1960, go up in the air, go up in the space at that point of time with without any modern technology. So that was my biggest, like, you know, a logic behind that. And I actually fell for it. Uh, what did you think? And what do you think about the 1960s launch, the Op- Apollo missions and going in the moon and stuff like that? How were they able to do it? A lot of hard work and yeah. a lot of hidden figures too. I mean, there was, you know, there the... the the share of GDP, it is insane when you think about how much. Hmm. And I'm not saying in like in a bad way. And well, there, there's 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 a lot here. But there were a lot of people working on it. There was it was just you know it was a, I think a, a mentality driven by the Cold War and sort of technological, industrial competition. But I mean, it's no, I mean it's pretty it's pretty wild to think about. I think that's one of the the. I, and I think it's one of the, the, the greatest technological accomplishments ever. I, I would actually, I haven't really, I haven't really ranked them in my head, but I would say that it's probably the biggest given the, the, the limitations of the day and just the, the, the capacity and sheer will to, to, plan around those limitations or innovate around those limitations. It's pretty incredible. And no one has been back since, since, um, since we, we were last there, which speaks to, I mean, I think that that speaks to the level of the challenge. It's very hard, but also, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna opine on this, but a lot of folks would point to that and the ballooning costs of the chosen sort of NASA hmm. way to get to the moon and just say that there's been, there's, the, there's been just this massive stagnation. It's definitely incredible. It shows you that what happens if the governments focus uh, the wealth as well as the minds of the nation. So it's pretty cool. Well, um, and I mean, people forget, or maybe people don't know, but there was a really long time there was a really long. Let me. I'll look it up right now while I'm while I'm just giving this spiel. But but for a while, we had no way. To, the United States had no way to launch people on U.S. rockets from U.S. soil, and hmm. the only way that NASA astronauts were getting to the International Space Station, where we've we've had a continuous presence for over twenty years, was on Russian rockets. And that seems like a pretty unthinkable proposition today. 
now, even even in the two plus months since the outset of the war, a NASA astronaut did return on one of those those Russian capsules, spacecraft capsules. But it's still, yeah, you know, it's it it, it seems pretty unthinkable, and and it just as a, a broader observation, about a third, I would say, of global launch capacity for Western payloads is, is completely offline now because of, because of all of this, these geopolitical tensions. Definitely. Interesting, interesting aside, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, it was like a decade where, where we couldn't. And, and, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, SpaceX famously 2020 flew Bob and Doug and <laughs> Bob and Doug. Yes. Bob and Doug. And, um, yeah, but, but, but that wasn't, you know, that there, there, the, the space shuttle, when it was retired, it was a, it was a long day coming, but it was also, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, a difficult day for a lot of folks from, from mm-hmm. NASA's rank and file to space enthusiasts to, I'm sure, Pentagon planners who, who just, you know, had to start brainstorming a little bit more about how to get certain projects up to orbit and that's not to say that there wasn't there wasn't you know there there aren't and still that, that there weren't and still aren't other sort of launch options but yeah right i actually didn't know about this fact that for 10 years we were or not we but us was totally relying on russia for these space flights and to go to international space station and yeah, just I think a month ago I went to Vancouver, and then the flight I chose that hey, let me watch this documentary by SpaceX on Elon Musk. Yeah, and that's where I realized all these things, and it was new. It's it's pretty new. I had no idea this happened, but it's crazy. It's also good to just be like you know, like always whenever we think about US, you always think about that hey, US is where things happen. US is where uh, they are accountable for everything. They can do everything, stuff like that. But had no idea they were totally dependent on Russia. That's that was a cool insight. Yeah, yeah. It was so. It was a shuttle's last flight was in June 2011. So it was a little under a decade. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and now on Twitter, we usually go around looking at this new organization called Launch House, and they have a tagline: "Always be launching." And it seems like space industry is following that trend: "Always be launching." So, what are your thoughts about the effects of yeah uh, the wild launch landscape? It's not winner takes all. There needs to be redundancy. Mm. And especially with the smaller rockets, the, the the CEOs and folks on those teams would tell you that even on a cost per kilogram basis, they are much more expensive than a rideshare mission on a Falcon 9. But the, the smaller launch vehicle enables flexibility in terms of where you're getting dropped off and, and where you need to go that... SpaceX might not 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 offer, but I mean the the, the launch there there I, I I forget exactly what the number is, but there are something like uh, hundred thirty like private privately funded launch companies. The number changes, and I mean you know it's think about how hard it is to for any startup to succeed, then think about how hard it is for a space focused capex intensive company to succeed as a subset of that but for a lot of those that aren't launch ones like they have they do have 
feasible ways now to get to space. Now, even just focus on rocket companies. It's hard. It's really hard. But there are there are more. And, you know, there's SpaceX. There is Virgin Orbit, which launches a rocket from the wing of a, well, the wing, like a modified you refer to Boeing, Virgin Atlantic, Bo- right? Boeing seven forty seven, sister sister company, or, or okay. I mean, yeah, it was, it was it was it was spun out from Virgin Galactic, the oh, right. Galactic, the 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 kind of meme stock and meme stock yeah. space company that has flown people, and it took you know billion a billion plus dollars to get to where it is today, but they and they also you know kind of kicked off this current and maybe now done SPAC craze mm. for writ large, but there, there are a lot of space companies that went public via SPAC over the last year and a half, but no Virgin orbit is comparatively, I think making, you know, they're flying, but they're flying payloads. They're not flying people. Anytime you, you're, you're developing a space vehicle that, and you intend to fly people, there is a lot more that you need to do. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, it just goes without saying, but there, then there is Rocket Lab, which is a, a New Zealand US company. And they, I would say they're the leaders kind of, they, they, they are the undisputed leaders in small launch. And then there, there's, there's, there's Astra, which most recently made it to orbit. They have flown. They move really quickly, and I, I was actually at their factory in Alameda last Thursday, and spent part of the day with with Chris Kemp, their CEO. And they made they were making their case to investors because they're publicly traded. They were making mm-hmm. their case that launch is a bell curve, and like I said, you know, SpaceX is undisputed leader in dollar per kilogram. But if you go to the other side and you just launch a lot. They're making the case, and and you know you have auto like manufacturing that if you just optimize around lowest cost per launch that they that they can win market share. But I mean the club of privately funded rockets that have made it to orbit. It is a small and prestigious club, but there are many more. There are many many more. I should say that that supposedly will make their more maiden flight this year, or if not this year than next year some of those will fail but some of those will succeed and i would expect to see that that number in terms of of companies but also vehicles that that are going to orbit you you can you can expect to see that that tick up in the if not coming months then in the coming years and but as as any of these companies who have made it to orbit would then tell you and and then especially like SpaceX or Rocket Lab that have quite a bit more flight heritage than the the others. You think that you get to space and that that's the hardest part and it gets easier, but actually producing at scale, you know, cutting cutting turnaround times, upping your flight cadence, and in in SpaceX's case, and and maybe and and actually probably pretty soon Rocket Lab's case, you know, reaching the reusability threshold or, or watermark, all of that is harder. But I mean, I, I I to to distill that in one word, it's the the production production 
is 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 hard. Understatement, understatement of the century. Yeah, it has to be hard. There are a lot of safety protocols. Um, so much stuff going on over there. Uh, I again returned to space, watched a documentary, looked at all the failures of Elon Musk. It's terrible. It's terrible. I don't know who can go through that. But also, launching a space startup is definitely hard, right? Because there's no easy way to monetize it. You cannot just run ads. You cannot just start subscriptions over there. Uh, you have to rely on the payload. So what are you seeing right now? How are these guys able to reach that monetization? How time does how much time does it take for them to reach their state? I would say it's still on unenticing proposition to start mm. one of these companies that operates typically in low earth orbit and and is trying to monetize through a space to earth function application but there's there's earth observation remote sensing pretty you know they're similar but but there's there's of course communication and a lot of these broadband mega constellations which by the way are very very expensive uh, at least you know it's a lot of there's a lot of of upfront costs that you have to navigate there but i mean there's 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 these most the, mostly the business models that you know, function as on, on space to earth. I, I wrote today for the newsletter about a lot of, of orbital transfer vehicles that are in most cases like about to fly their maiden mission. There, there's one from an Italian company called Deorbit that just completed its fifth mission and claimed like a propulsive first. So there are, there are, there are space to space services and products that are becoming feasible. Then there's, there's Axiom, which is based down the road for me in Houston, and it's started by two two entrepreneurs who who used to work at NASA, uh, hmm. Cam Gafarian and Mike Suffredini, and that they 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 just had the first all private mission to the International Space Station. They are going to attach a module to the ISS. They're going to eventually break away. You know, there are a lot of concepts. China is in the process of finishing their own space station. The International mm. Space Station has, the writing is on the wall and it will be deorbited and decommissioned towards the end of the decade. And if we intend, if the, the United States and the West intends on maintaining the, our sustained presence in space and having these laboratories and test beds, the only hope for the U.S. is in a commercially owned and operated platform. And so there are a lot of companies that are working on this, and I have prematurely dubbed it the golden age for space station, space stations, because there's only, there's the ISS and there's China's station, and there there's, there's talk of a lot more, but I mean, some of these will become a reality. Now, when they become a reality, that is, that's more of an open question, but I, Axiom is clearly already executing on this mm -hmm. and they have, they, they are not pre-revenue. They, they had paying customers fly to, to the station, but to your point, you know, Axiom is, NASA is, is going from being an operator of this infrastructure in low earth orbit to becoming a customer. And right. that is, that's the handoff. And NASA's turning its focus to more deep space exploration. So that's, a, that's a, a, an, an interesting meta trend. 
but the hope is that you know there will be competition and actually there's a lot of interesting ideas in terms of potential potential revenue streams from media and entertainment to of course tourism but also hosting governments hosting fortune 500 companies and so it really still is early days i would say for these these new business models and space-to-face services and products that you're asking about but you you can see in certain cases you can see them starting to take shape yeah Axiom's design looks so cool. The space station design that they have proposed. Uh, I'm not sure what the status as of now, but looking that in the space, that would be good. Uh, we also talked about a lot of like, you know, the communication that these space agencies or space companies are trying to put out. So there's a huge PR problem that you also mentioned that the gap between what the public understands and what is actually happening. So how do you think about that right now? There was someone on Jeopardy recently, or at least on a Jeopardy taping that aired recently that I think they were on a 20 plus game win streak and they got knocked out because they couldn't answer what is Artemis. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm using Jeopardy brain. Basically the answer was, was Artemis. And that the, the, the question was, I'm getting all tripped up in the, the Jeopardy like way of framing things. But, but, uh, but basically the, the question was about, what is the name of NASA's return to the moon? And, you know, we had Apollo, the Apollo era. Hmm. Now we are in the, now we are in the Artemis era. The fact that, you know, the fact that someone who, who, who knows a fair amount about trivia clearly didn't know that is, is pretty, I think, and, and none of the other contestants either uh, had the answer. So I think, and, and then I think that, you know, don't get it twisted. NASA, go look at their social media Look at, I mean, look at how many people just wear NASA and how ubiquitous the logo is. Right. And how, how much merch merch they sell. And then also how many followers they have across social media platforms. It's crazy. That, that said, I still think they have somewhat seeded some of, some of the mind share. I don't know. Let's say there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of public narratives that are propagating and this isn't NASA's fault by any means, but there's a lot of public narratives propagating that, you know, the, the space is just a, a billionaire's playground or plaything or escape pod. And I, I think it's really, really uh, disingenuous. And I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go into any, na- naming anyone in particular, but it is true. Yes. They're like, like, Billionaire, a lot of billionaires have their own space companies, but those companies have, they're, they're enabling a lot of possibilities. And ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, when you look at SpaceX, SpaceX has saved us, the American, you know, the hmm. American taxpayer, they've saved us a lot of money. So, and, and, and I think that, I think that this is a NASA issue. It's a space industry one writ large, just doing a better job of communicating the value that it already plays. If we didn't have a lot of these these Earth observation EO satellites, you know, tracking, mitigating, and adapting to climate change would be a hell of a lot harder. And and then you know when you look at Ukraine, a lot of the imagery that's being collected by those three letter agency assets on orbit can't be shared with Ukraine for various reasons. But there is a there is a commercial 
EO industry. And they mostly still sell to the government. They also sell to other businesses, but those companies have been really, really, really important in, you know, showing the world what's going on in Ukraine and showing everyone that, that, that Putin and has no, you know, the emperor has no clothes and, and Hmm. there's like, this is something we've been writing about quite a bit and it goes, you know, it's, it's troop movements, it's humanitarian corridors, refugee movements recently their, their planet, which is one of the, one of the, really big EO companies, one of the, one of the uh, big innovators in the space, they had satellite imagery of fighting on Snake Island, which is to go back five or six weeks, you know, the, the hollowed island where, where you, the Ukrainian soldiers supposedly said, fuck, fuck off Russian warship. And hmm. now, now that that island is, is you know, they're, they're fighting on that island. I'm not sure at the time of this recording and then at the time that it airs, if that's still be the case, but you know, there, then there's also been, you know, some really, really somber, really, really tragic roles that satellite imagery's played, for example, you know, in corroborating that, that there are mass trenches and, and again, it's, you know, it's just terrible. It's tragic. And, but, it, but it, this is a, a, a great example of in uh, Buka. Like you, you could see from space that there, there were bodies on the street and it just, and you could see that they were there on the day that on the days where Russian forces still occupied the town. So there, you know, it's played, it's played a pretty instrumental role in shaping public opinion, I think, and just informing the world's understanding of what's going on over there. And you see an informal proxy, I guess I would say is like, go look at like the New York times and see what percentage of the time, a lot of these stories are, or even when there's satellite images above the fold and it's, it's a lot. So I, all that is to I mean that, you know, that that's there, there, there are other examples that are, that are less just, you know, just gutting, but, but there, there are a lot of ways in which, I think space is driving positive value for us here back on earth. And I, I just don't think that it's being communicated as much as it could be. Definitely. When you say that, I can only recall of reading this way back when I was in 10th or 11th grade that I don't know if that's a real story or not, but there's a lady who wrote a letter to the NASA's director and she was like, hey, what's the point of spending so much money, throwing so much money out of the earth when there's hunger, there is all these issues over here. And he's like, hey, look at all these NASA spinoffs. Uh, yeah, yeah. And look at all these optimization and organization that that's happening because of uh, intellectual minds spending their spending their time and brains on space rather than working on. I think I don't think if this is something he said, but uh, there's another guy who said that, hey, our entire world has so many intellectual people. Now, think about how many are working towards building the lottery machine versus how many are working towards real hard problems so yeah. that was a really interesting way to frame it yeah i mean there are direct there are there are hundreds of technologies that have like directly spilled over 
from from NASA. But then there's a bunch of indirect benefits, I would say, you know, I think that I think it is the case that a lot of people go into STEM because of space. Hmm. And it will be interesting to see in another generation's time, whether that's still the case, whether it is it is more pronounced of a trend. But if there was a Lego survey a couple of years and I actually asked Jeanette Epps, who is a NASA astronaut right now and the CFO of NASA at the time about this poll, because Lego conducted a poll of, of young Gen Z uh, American kids and like mm-hmm. no one, none of them said that they wanted to be an astronaut. They all said they went, they wanted to be a YouTuber. And of course, you know, there, there's, there's, there's more complexity there that we don't have, have time to get into right. on the purview of the show, but but it's yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I think that goes back to the potential PR issues and 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 recruiting issues. But I do think that historically, I mean, I think space has been a huge driver for for folks to go into to STEM education and and and, yeah. and professions, even if they don't directly work in the space industry. But yeah. I, and, and and I think as while we're on the topic, it it is hard. It's it's hard for all these companies for for a lot of these companies, you know, startups and. It's hard for them to recruit because the talent pool is only so big and it is growing, but it's not growing as quickly as the companies are growing. And a lot of these companies, given the role that automation, AI, advanced manufacturing, software, <clears throat> so many more things, that, that, that all of that plays in the entire sort of space industry now people you know you don't need to be a rocket scientist to to be someone who would be a really good fit for some of these companies and so they're competing they're competing directly in a lot of cases with the, the the biggest companies in the world who you know if you i'm not the first person to say this but a lot of the the current generation's best and brightest are are you know just working on optimizing ad targeting hmm. or, or, or click like conversions and click through click throughs. So and open rates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hey, well, Hey, if, 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 if someone wants to help, if someone wants to help us with that, we don't almost say no, but I don't, I don't, I don't want them to do that instead of uh, building the next great space company. Right. Definitely. Uh, I'm actually curious. So this con- this particular poll that you mentioned about, like, you know, many Gen Z population, they want to now become YouTuber or astronaut. What do you think about that? Because when I think about it, I'm like, wait, YouTuber, what does YouTuber mean? YouTuber just means someone who makes video, but then you have to choose what is your content. Are you just going to like, there's a set of YouTubers who are just making funny videos, but then there's a huge population that is focused on education and there's a huge population that creates like mini documentaries. I know there are people who just talk about space and stuff on YouTube. So what do you say? Are there no interest? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's Tim Dodd, for example, who's everyday astronaut and he's huge. Exactly. And I I actually met him on, on Thursday and really, I mean, really enjoy he's, he's, he's brilliant and he's super talented. And again, I don't know where there are, I already have trouble with like how much I work and I don't know how. So, so given that, I don't know how the hell he does it. But then again, he, he, we, we actually like had this exchange. He, he said, 
he's like, I don't know how you keep up with all of it on a daily basis because of course he's not posting. His videos take a ton of time and they're super right. meticulously researched and everything. But the cadence of those is different than a daily newsletter, obviously. But that was funny. It made me feel good. But I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> we don't. I, I don't consider what I do to hold, hold it, hold the candle up to him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th- that's why that's. I, I would agree. There's more nuance and complexity there than the headline takeaway, especially given the landscape of a platform like YouTube and the actual real, real ability, at least on YouTube to earn a living compared to some of the other ones. Hmm. I think there is a lot of educational. I think there's a lot of people. I think what we're trying to do on a slightly different scale is, is inform, educate, and, Hmm. but also entertain. And I think there are a lot of folks who do a really good job with that on YouTube and, and other platforms and, and, and TikTok as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm now, I'm now trying to find the, I, I didn't, did not, did not plan on bringing this up on the podcast. So I don't, I don't know if I'm going to find it, uh, with the, the, the poll. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to find it, but. I think it should, it should show up. Like a lot of people have been talking about this YouTuber versus astronaut. It's, it's 2019. It's US, UK mm-hmm. and China. Yeah. Yeah. More than half of those in China said they wanted to be an astronaut, making it the most popular career aspiration. I think that might have been part of the reason that there was a a, a pretty wide re- reception and reaction to this that that possible frame of geopolitical competition. Mm-hmm. I do think you know I do think that that will be uh, an increasing increasingly prevalent storyline in the years to come. Beyond debris, I think there are there are risk factors. There, there's literally the the macro headwinds right now, and a, and the fact that a lot of these companies, including the ones that are publicly traded, are very very much pre revenue. There's still so much technology risk that has not been retired. the The business model hasn't necessarily been proven out. There's going to be consolidation and launch. You know, a lot of them aren't going to make it. I'm not referring to any companies in particular, nor am I referring to publicly traded ones versus private i'm just saying like you know Hmm. not everyone's gonna make it and and so there's those headwinds there's there's technical and engineering ones but then there's also the 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 increased weaponization of space i would say and there and and just rising tensions sort of between at least between the major spacefaring nations I, I, but I, you know, I would also say that I, if you look literally at the funding data, as I do on a day-to-day basis and week, week, weekly basis, there are a lot of companies that the, the, as I wrote a while back, like the state of the U.S. defense defense industrial base is rotten. There's a nod to Shakespeare, and I, I don't think I'm repeating that correctly, or maybe I'm just not very funny, but that there, there's been so much consolidation and. And that that sort of base has really hollowed out, and it really directly and in, in, affects affects you know defense, but it also and that, like for example on the defense side they can't make any more Stinger and Javelin missiles, but that, I mean you you see that in in aerospace and the amount of independent propulsion providers or lack thereof, so you know the rocket engines or the hypersonic engines motors that sort of thing. So I think that that will be an area to watch over the next few years. But I mean, you see a company like Hadrian that they're really early mm. stage, but there are, and then there's, there's another one I think that's really interesting to watch called Ursa major. And 
These are, these are interesting because they buck some of the trends, especially Ursa Major, for example. They buck a lot of the, the common trends and really common buzzwords in, in, in that in Silicon Valley in space. And the big one is vertical integration. So, mm-hmm. for example, SpaceX is like, I saw Eric Berger from Ars Technica tweet that like sources told him that SpaceX is now 85% vertically integrated. So that's, that's you know, that's pretty, pretty far along the spectrum. A lot of other companies that are you know, aspiring to do the same thing as SpaceX or, or that operate in, in EO, for example, operate these satellites. They all say that they're vertically integrated too, but, but there, there are new business models like, like Ursa literally wants to be horizontally, horizontally integrated. They don't want to build the rocket. They just want to sell rockets to all these different launch providers, hypersonic test bed developers, that sort of thing. And so there, there is definitely this, this, there's a lot of, of dynamism in the sector, especially when you look at all the dual use companies and dual use refers to a technology that has civilian and military applications, both of them. So and nuclear is probably a pretty good example there, but that, 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 I mean that, you know, there's going to be a lot more defense spending for the foreseeable future. And there is, the, the 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 pandemic, or as I, I said earlier, the Panini has drawn increased attention to the precariousness of, of supply chains and like just in time models and all that interdependency. And people are saying now, of course, we have to resource some of this. That conversation is especially pronounced, I would say, in in aerospace because the situation there is is in the space space situation is just different. Uh, and I mean just to take an example, like there are like, like thousands and tens of, or tens of thousands of like mom and pop shops that do machining in a very specific way. And there's just no, there's, there's no generation that's going to succeed them or, or, or there's no, there's no plan to pass it on when, when the owners operators retire. So there, I think you'll see a lot of interesting picks and shovel businesses to kind of abstract away all the complexity uh, in the coming years as it relates to space. Yeah. Not many people think about that. What hap- What will happen to these mom and pop shops who don't have a next generation who is interested? They are more interested in becoming a YouTuber. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like, I mean like SpaceX famously like way back before, you know, they were flying and landing on ocean drone ships and, and, and literally flying like, two rockets from either coast within a day. They, mm. they, they had a really good, I think yeah. one man machine shop and they, sorry, that's my roommate. Sean, stop. Uh, they, they, sorry. Um, <laughs> I told, I told them I was going to be recording here. Uh, they, they like, they had like a one man machining shop that they, that, so one guy and they liked working with him. So they just like brought him in house. So that, I mean, there's an example really early, like a long time ago, but yeah, it's an interesting question. I have, I have no answers for you, but it is, it is something, it's something to think about. And if the kids, you know, if the kids are, or next generation are not inclined to take it up, what happens there? And what happens if there's components in, in these, you know, because designing a spacecraft or a rocket is, is unbelievably complex and there's all these dependencies and, 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 so it is, it is interesting to think about. 
This is the longest pod I've ever recorded, one hour 54 mark, we are reaching that. Do you have 10 minutes more to go? Because space is a topic that we definitely love to talk more about. You got yeah, 10 minutes yeah, more? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's, I was, let's I was wondering, I, I can't see the time right now, but like, I was yeah. like, this feels like it's gone like longer than the calendar. Yeah, but. this is almost two hours. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Um, Let's talk about Mars. Mars is something everybody's saying. I believe I have a I have one friend who worked at Tesla. Then he moved to SpaceX. And I was like, what did you think was the difference between Tesla and SpaceX? These are all both very mission-driven companies. So he's like, Tesla, your goal, the entire company is working towards electrification, sustainable energy, stuff like that. But that's very voo-voo. Like, you know, it's very, it's all up in the air. You don't know how that world looks like when it's all sustainable. For SpaceX, the mission is simple that, hey, you see that planet, that red planet at the top, uh, at the top of the sky, we want to reach there. That's it. So you got a very good mission. You got your goal all in the line. And now you know what to do. So that, that was a really interesting way to frame it. But tell me more about what do you think about lunar and Mars exploration right now? What is the state that we are at right now? Well... <clears throat> It is possible. We know that it's possible to get to the moon with humans. We know that it's possible to at least get to Mars with robots. The entire population, as far as we know, is the entire population of Mars is is robots. Again, as far as as we know, I, I'm I'm not gonna I, I'm I'm gonna assume there there was actually a picture recently from one of said robots where people online were, were reading into it to assume that there was like a Martian door in some, <laughs> some, some, some sediment or a rock. I will leave it to your listeners to, to look into that themselves and, and uh, do your own research as they say. But I mean, yeah. So, so we've gotten robots to Mars, but I think the common view, this is, I, I know that every podcast is better with a hot take. This is like the coldest take. I mean, we're going to go to, I'm of the view that we're going to make it back to the moon before we go to Mars. So you, you can see a lot of that coming into focus. There, there, there are issues with there, there are issues with the timelines and whether, you know, some of the early, the, the, the timelines that were set by the previous administration and initially maintained by this one, whether those were just like ultra ambitious, but the te- I mean, to, to your point earlier, the technology, the technology is there. We've done it before. And, mm. but there's, there's a game plan. There's a different game plan now, you know, it's not going to be uh, a series of, of subsequent missions and kind of land and, and then eventually come back. The, the idea is, is a, a sustained presence. There's also already, there's plenty of chatter about it being a new, domain for geopolitical and economic competition between various, you know, geopolitical entities, spacefaring nations, basically between the West and and Russia or China, but I would say more more so China. And but but there, there's also new infrastructure. There there are companies there that are there there are a lot of you know solicitations that NASA has out and and procurements that they're making so there's going to be more companies involved in this i would say than there were last time around 
the, the prime contractors, the contractor, government contractors were involved in the last one, but of course it was very much still spearheaded by by the US NASA by US space agency. But there yeah, I mean there's a lot there's a lot of new technology that we have. I I think I mean I I think when you when you just watch the movie, watch 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 what watch what happens to to Matt Damon in mm. The Martian. There there you, you can only go to Mars. Uh you know your 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 window of opportunity is limited just given how you know given how planets rotate around the sun and there's just the cost of of getting the support systems there and uh, and and you know running logistics between the two planets and and just the added risk, risk and complexity it's i mean it's obvious it obviously is a lot harder but there are robots there so never say never and they, those, those, those robots, I, I suppose, are 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 the predecessors of, of the eventual human settlers. But yeah, I mean, I think, I, I I definitely think that you'll see the U.S. back on the moon this decade. I don't know about in the next couple of years. I don't think that that's realistic. But depending on how you take the view, you know, it's a stepping stone. It is its own destination in and of itself, but it does, I mean, it does look like the next time we go back, we're not, we're not sort of landing and leaving, we're landing and expanding. And that doesn't mean like that you and I are going to be there in, in 2029 or 2030, but the whole, the whole idea is that this, that they it will be settled and there will be exploration and it will not just be sort of limited missions and limited engagement and uh, you know it it is going to be cheaper it's going to be cheaper i would assume than than it was last time but the the moon rocket that we at least are are that 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 the nasa is still saying is is what's going to return the first cruise there it's been it's been pretty expensive and i mean that's yeah it's conversation for for another day yeah but it's been expensive to develop it's been just expensive to develop there have been cost overruns there have been some some technical issues and you know it's controversial to say the least but i will say i i will say you know again i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna weigh in and, and and opine i'm just putting the facts out there but when they did roll it out as I wrote in one of our newsletters, it, it looked like it, it, SLS. I wrote was, was looking like a snack. It looked pretty cool. I mean, who doesn't like who doesn't like a big rocket? I I would be remiss to mention though. Again, the I don't think I've I have included this at all. But really, rockets get all the attention, and they even get a lot of the investment when the margins are super thin. And Starship. SpaceX is is an outlier, and, and the Starship vehicle they're developing in South Texas, and also maybe now in Florida, that 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 might that'll also be 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 change the equation based on just being fully reusable. But it's not it's not here yet. But but basically, I mean, all, the whole idea with payload is that we like flip the eighty twenty status quo of of space coverage, 
by by only spending 20% of the time rather than 80% of the time on SpaceX and NASA. So hmm. the the rest of the time is on the, you know, the 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 dynamic huge like flourishing ecosystem and all of these these companies and then there's a lot of a lot of agencies from the regulatory agencies to the three letter ones that are huge customers there, there's there's just so much more to this ecosystem that initially meets the eye i think for for some for the, for the uninitiated or for someone who's just passing interest in in space and so yeah i mean we really do try to flip that dynamic on its head because that's how i think we can win and i think that's where there's a lot of there, there's just a huge opportunity for us so I did want to get that in because I, I had that as a talking point and I don't think I've said it before to anyone yet. And so I like yeah. wrote it up for this and had my, had my, my digital flash cards no, over that's here perfect. That, I, that I yeah. haven't really consulted, but I, I'm glad I got it in. No, that's perfect. Uh, this was a really good one. Uh, let's think, let's think about the fact that, okay, a 12 year old kid is right now listening to this podcast and they are feeling, and they're interested in space. What do you advise them? What's the best way to get in space? Is it to write? Is it to make YouTube videos? Is it to become an astronaut? Or is it to start a space tech company? Well, a wise person once said an hour and a half ago that they don't like sketching out like a, a, a life path. The plan. plan. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got you to... Gotta, got to allow for contingencies and serendipity and and the unexpectedness of life but i don't know i i think that there's a lot of ways i i the, the i think that the the canonical career path that you would have needed to take 50 years ago would look a lot different and and, and you know even if, if you weren't like a white male you might even not just have the opportunity but but even 20 years ago way different I think there's a lot more opportunities. You know, there, there, there are a lot of these huge tech trends that, that we, that we really touched on, but, but I mean, it's not, it's not just, it's not just sort of orbital mechanics or, or, or engine manufacturing. There's a lot of other ways, a lot of other functions that these companies have. And especially as they become more mature, the businesses become more viable, you know, I would, I would still, I would still recommend that you take a, a technical career path and go through STEM if you want to work in space. But there, there are a lot of a lot more non-technical roles opening up. You know, one of the co- most common things I hear at these companies is at, at the ones that are at a certain stage is, is how they need to scale up on sales and marketing, and hmm. and I mean even like build out investor relation teams that sort of thing. So I don't know. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think, I think you could, I think there's still, you know, we're really just scratching the surface of, of how many people are going to work in this industry, how many people are eventually going to live in space and how many people are going to be a pe- paying attention to this at a much deeper level than they are today. So you could take a lot of paths and I think you'll be okay. Yeah. I think that's a good insight to drop that there are these companies who now are also looking for ways to monetize it, looking for investor relationships. There are definitely a lot of technical roles or non-technical roles opening up. That's a great one to take advantage of. But Ryan, this was a good one. This was a good one. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm a a longtime listener, first-time caller. This has been fun.